Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. A little lumpy here. Wait a second, what's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding, only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent, mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So in the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss issues like how to help our patients work through decision-making, what our leaders should do to decrease physician burnout on a systems level, the Venn diagram that is medicine, marriage, and money, being an American physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. So let's start the show. T. Mark Calvert, J.D., founded Calvert & Associates in 1996. His goal has always been to provide the highest quality of legal service to those who ask for his help. Well, I asked for his help regarding what to say to a patient when you have a complication. Do we apologize? Not apologize? Isn't that an admission of guilt? It's not really called guilt. Negligence. So we get into that. How much information do we actually disclose? We were introduced by Dr. Gita Pensa, an emergency medicine physician at Brown and the creator of the podcast Doctors in Litigation, The L Word. If you haven't checked it out, this is essential listening for all physicians. So on top of settling the apology issue, kind of, Mr. Calvert says that you need to exude competence and caring. We also talk about the importance of walking the patient through what happened and giving them a clear and concise plan for what you're going to do next. Since 1987, a primary focus of Mr. Calvert's practice has been healthcare liability defense. And over the years, he's handled innumerable claims, disputed matters, and lawsuits. Mr. Calvert is board certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization in the field of personal injury trial law. Mr. Calvert graduated with a JD from the University of Texas School of Law in 1987 and was admitted to the State Bar of Texas later that year. While at UT, he served as a law clerk for the Texas Employment Commission and wrote opinions for the Commission Appeals Department. Mr. Calvert joined Edwards & Associates in August of 1987 after having completed a clerkship during the summer of 1986. The firm of Edwards & Calvert was formed when Mr. Calvert became a named partner in 1991. He became board certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specializations in the field of personal injury trial law in 1994 and has been recertified at the indicated intervals ever since. On September 3rd, 1996, Calvert & Associates was established. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Mark Calvert, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. Let's start with a hypothetical story. Hypothetically speaking, I've just had a complication in the OR that was, say, preventable. It was a technical error, so I did something maybe I shouldn't have done, and it led to a complication. But it's a known complication that was discussed in the pre-op period. The patient may or may not remember that aspect of our discussion, but it was definitely discussed probably multiple times. But it still happened. How do I best explain this to the patient and family without 
increasing my risk of litigation? You know, it's a good question, and you gave me a little advance notice, and I've been thinking about it. There's a couple of rules that I would like to emphasize here, and, and for those that are listening, the added first, do no harm. With respect to a complication, there's already been harm done. So first, do no further harm. One might want to protect one's interests and not divulge anything because that would arguably do harm to the doctor. But I think it does greater harm to the patient to not be upfront and transparent about what happened. Now, I've defended doctors for 35 years, and we can talk a lot of different layers and angles. If we're looking out for number one, I still say that it's probably the best policy to be upfront and honest with the patient about what happened. Now, the word choice, the judgment of the setting, how it is conveyed, there are some nuances there, but big picture, I think that the doctor should sit down with the patient and give a concise, tight, accurate explanation of how the complication occurred. Same question, but this time it wasn't an error. So it was a complication. It's a known complication. For instance, in my field as an ENT, a post-tonsillectomy bleed. Adults, around 20% of the time, have a post-tonsillectomy bleed. We have to take them back to the operating room to stop it. Often, the adage is, if you're not getting post-tonsillectomy bleeds, you're not taking out enough tonsils. So how is that conversation any different, or is it any different? So that brings up that second rule that I was thinking about, and that is one I learned early on when I started defending healthcare providers in 1987, and that is present the truth, but present it in the light most favorable to you. So when a known complication happens, bleeding, infection, some other type of challenge in the recovery, I think that you have to be open and honest and transparent, but I also think that you can explain that statistically this happens even though the doctor's doing everything right and emphasize that part of it where you might not be able to do that in the first scenario where there was a technical error, where you used a three-eighths bit and you should have used a four-fifths bit and you have to acknowledge that. So I think that they are different scenarios. I still think you have to get in the room with the patient and sit down with them and go over things. But I think that in the second scenario, where it's a known complication that occurred, even though you were acting reasonably and appropriately in all respects, I think that should be driven home and underscored very clearly to the patient and their family. You've had a bleed, 0.2% of the patients who have the same procedure bleed. We talked about that beforehand, but I wanna go over what has happened, why that's happened, and what we need to do now because it's happening. Just outline it and emphasize that it's related to standard operating techniques and some patient's anatomy is more vulnerable to bleeds. Let's go back to that first scenario where it was a known complication, technical error. I've been told by attorneys that many lawsuits could have been prevented if the doctor would have just apologized. I've also been told by attorneys that if you apologize, it's an admission of guilt. That's a paradox, right? You don't want to say, I'm sorry that I did this wrong, because then you are admitting that you're guilty and it makes them more likely to litigate and then win because you've already admitted you did something wrong, right? So the question is apology or no apology, but I want to put a caveat in there. My mom says that a late birthday card 
she's obsessed with birthday cards and holiday <laughs> cards and everything. She, a late birthday card is worse than no card. So why is that relevant? A half-hearted apology to me seems worse than no apology. If you're not admitting guilt, you're saying, I'm sorry this happened to you, but it isn't my fault. It somehow rings hollow. So apology or no apology? Well, I'm going to give you kind of a waffly answer, and it's an answer that we encourage our clients to give in many situations. You know, if you're asked a hypothetical question about an ENT surgery, an ENT patient, your answer might be, it depends, because it depends on a lot of different things. And I think it's the same answer for whether or not you automatically give an apology when a technical error has happened. There are some things to consider. One is to have at least a general awareness of what your state's law is with respect to apologies and the admissibility of that in a later lawsuit. There are some states that give kind of an absolute cover for the doctor who apologizes, and I think Arizona is an example. There are other states like Texas where you can express feelings of sympathy. I'm so sorry this happened to you, and it's not admissible to show liability. But if you go on to say, and the reason it happened to you is because I zigged instead of zagged, and that's what caused the problem, and I regret it very much, that will be admissible in Texas to prove liability. So you need to know that going in, not necessarily so it detours you from making the apology, but so you can be aware of the ramifications of the apology and structure the wording accordingly. I would say, again, I'll return to the, the first answer, which doing this a long time and seeing a lot of different scenarios, if the complication is fairly significant, there's probably going to be a claim or a lawsuit whether or not you apologize. I think the apology has an odor to it, like the late birthday card, if it seems to be self-serving and is a bit of a CYA. I think if it's heartfelt, I think if it's done proximate to the event within a reasonable parameter of time, then I think it's more well-received from a patient. But I think the best way to look at this is if we're the patient. I mean, we're fairly sophisticated consumers of healthcare. You're a doctor, I'm a lawyer who defends doctors. But I had surgery a year ago for a cancerous tumor to be removed from my thyroid. I had Herthel cell carcinoma. I had a terrific surgeon, Donald Donovan, he's a stud, he was great. If he had done something and had sat down with me, I would have accepted it and I just would have wanted to know what's the game plan now to deal with the complication. If he had done something and not informed me and I had wrestled with issues and problems and it was a little bit kind of a veil over what really was going on, once I eventually figured it out, and I think people do eventually figure it out, they get their records, they talk to other people, they're going to be really upset that there wasn't a forthcoming and sincere attempt to explain what had happened. So I'll kind of come full circle and say, even though it could heighten the risk of a lawsuit, it probably is not going to detour a lawsuit from happening. I still think that the apology route is probably the best one. Number one, I think it's the right thing ethically. I think treating others the way we want to be treated is, at the end of the day, the best approach. Second, I do think it softens most people. Maybe they still pursue a claim, 
but I've seen situations where people can be softened and the resolution of the claim is for a much more reasonable set of terms. I'll give you a quick war story on that. As I recall, this was many years ago, but it was a gynecological surgery. I think it was maybe a LVAH and he penetrated the bowel. The patient was hurt, needed repair surgery, had a colostomy for a while. It was uncomfortable. It was painful. It was a problem. The doctor was a good doctor. She sued. He did try to talk to her. She was unhappy. But we went to mediation and I told him, I said, you know, normally I don't like my clients to speak in the opening session of a mediation, but you knew this lady for 20 years and I know you feel bad about this and I would like for you to just talk to her. Now, there are some protections of what you say in mediation, but he really bared his soul. I mean, they were in a small community. I remember him saying, I see you in the grocery store and it pains me that you turn your head. I feel so bad that this has hurt you. And I want you to know that I tried my best. It wasn't intentional. We tried to rally and get this fixed. I'm sorry you had complications afterwards. We went on to resolve that case for a fraction of what it would have cost otherwise, because it really tamped down the emotions and the negative feelings. And that's, I think, one of the risks when a complication happens. You've got some suffering by the patient and some wonder about what happened. And the doctor is their bridge with the science and with the unknown. If the doctor can have the courage to be a bit of a rescuer in the area of, let me tell you what happened here, even if they still pursue a claim, I do think that it has laid the groundwork for a better resolution. I also think that there's just a little bit of a mojo and the doctor can feel the psychological high road when they have reached out. And we may get into this, but one of the questions is, was why did the complication occur? And if it occurred because of anatomy or just the fog of war or maybe equipment, that's one thing. If it occurred because the doctor was in a rush, he had a full patient's back at the office, and he cut a couple of corners. That's another thing. And that's something that I think we have to address is what can be done to intercept some of these complications. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, things happen, but it's another when you say, look, I'm shooting free throws here. And even though I shoot 90%, sometimes I'm gonna miss one, but I'm not rushing through any of them. I'm doing this with care and with precision. I just wanna dissect what that OB said. It was not, I'm sorry, I messed up. What it was, was I take my work home with me. I think about you often, and I feel terribly that this happened to you. So the patient knows that you're just not a number, a bill, a copay. The patient knows that you're a person and you feel horribly about what happened. But what he didn't do, or at least from your explanation, was I messed up. I'm sorry. That's not what was said. You're in Texas, so presumably that happened in Texas, where if you do say that, the case is over, right? There's not going to be any mediation. Like, they're going to take this to court because they've won already. Is that correct? I like the parsing of it because you're right. I mean, this is something where there's a lot of finesse and there, there are different pressure points here. So what you've said is correct. 
this might be 20 years ago. I don't remember the case to know exactly what happened, but you know, bowel injury in a hysterectomy is a known complication. I think it was more along the lines of there were adhesions, we got into the bowel, I feel terrible about that. But it wasn't, we got into the bowel because I was listening to Led Zeppelin and I should have been listening to Bach. It wasn't something that where you could say, oh my gosh, what are you doing? I thought it was scar and it turns out it was bowel. Right. That could easily happen to anybody, but it's still, you know, it's questionable whether you'd consider that technical error or not. I'm never in the abdomen, so I don't. <laughs> I gotcha. It's a little bit on the razor's edge, but I think that, frankly, if he had gone in because his hand cramp or some other, this is a iatrogenic, I can't believe this happened. And there's been some weird stuff happen in the OR. I mean, we've had lights fall out of the ceiling. We've had the cautery catch things on fire. I've handled some cases where you're just like, I don't know how that happens. Or I think it was an ENT procedure and the person was kind of tilted and they rolled off the table. But look, those people are highly irritated when they are able to put the puzzle together and no one has come forward and said, this is what happened. Okay. So the key is, as soon as it happens, be very forthcoming. This happened. The nuance is how much ownership you're taking within that dialogue. You can either jump on your sword and take complete ownership, which is what some people are being told to do. But again, what I'm hearing from you is there is risk there that they could take this and use it against you, depending on what state you're in. Talk to your state society to find out what the rules are in your state, laws are in your state. And I'd like to just add, you know, one of my favorite lines is from Dirty Harry, where Clint Eastwood said, a man has got to know his limitations. Male or female, doctors have to understand what their strengths are. And someone like you, who's very well spoken and is on these issues, I think could walk in right after the procedure and sit down with the person in the family when everybody's coherent enough to hear it and probably give a nice Twitter response about what happened and now what the plan is going to be and field questions. There are some doctors that are probably not as gifted in that area. And so they need to be a little bit more maybe discreet as to the timing. I think they should reach out to a colleague or a risk manager or a defense attorney that they've worked with before. I also think that the record needs to capture what happened again in the in a truthful way, but in a light that's most favorable to the effort of the doctor, to the rescuer who's trying to help a patient with a challenging condition. It should not be a prostrate on the ground confession in the record, but it can be a truthful and not a some kind of cover job that describes accurately what happened in relatively brief language. And that's what I think probably should be done to the patient. But I also think that one of the things is to go in and sit down with the patient. Another is to, if you have a dry erase board or a piece of paper and a pen, most of y'all can draw what happened or show them a YouTube video of how the adhesions are or how this anatomy was different than what we thought it was going to be. I would say that big chunk of complications are not because of any technical error. It's because of the road not being clear once you got to where you were at and you had reason to go forward. That ended up not to be the correct move. But the the, the question is, was that reasonable judgment? And I'll go back to what you said about the, the gynecological case. 
if he goes in and says, I caused the problem and I caused the problem because I wasn't being very careful, that compromises the defense. But when a repair succeeds, when they're able to go back to work, the damages start to lessen a little bit. And so it's not game over, I'm in bankruptcy, they get $10 million. As I recall, they wanted $250,000 and we settled for 50. I think the attitude and the lack of arrogance, the humility of being willing to say, this is what happened, let me explain to you why I think it happened, and then let's outline a plan to get over this, to me will soften most reasonable people. Now, are there some who will exploit the situation or they have family members that will help them exploit the situation? Of course, that's what makes these things horse races and tough ones at that. But not saying anything, even not apologizing, not really acknowledging it, hoping that they don't figure it out, I think is a recipe for disaster. And I think time has proven. When I talk to juries, when I talk to people that have had care that they call into question, it's the lack of caring. It's the tiny amount of time that is spent. It's the assembly line approach and then wrapped in a bow of arrogance. That's what fuels people to say, you know what? I am going to get my pound of flesh one way or another. So if you can overcome those things or fake it till you make it, But if you can show, I want to spend some time with you. I've canceled my next hour. I want to spend some time with you. I want to draw for you what happened. I gave it my best shot in there. We do have a complication, but I have a specialist coming in. I feel very confident that this is going to succeed, but I want this all out on the table so that you understand. The other thing that I would offer is, as I've done this long enough, I feel that the right attitude can be a game changer, but then backing up the words with some action. Sometimes some type of reimbursement is not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. We're talking sometimes hundreds of dollars. What do you mean reimbursement? You do a procedure and you're getting paid. And let's say that uh, they have to pay some percentage of it. I don't know, you you put tubes in a kid's ear and let's say that's a $1,500 procedure and they have to pay $500 of it. And it doesn't go, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, and, and it doesn't go well. Yeah. For whatever reason, you can make that up in the snap of just over a few days. So you're saying waive their surgical fee. Exactly. Like we don't have control over the facility fee or the anesthesia, but we do have control over the surgical fee. So you can waive the surgical fee. But again, but isn't that then admitting if they have a complication and you're like, oh, here, take this money back. It seems to me to smell of desperation. I may be mistaken, though. Well, I'll say this. Again, it depends. For some who don't do it right, it might reek of desperation because that's what it is. But for others who are trying to do it right in humility, what they're trying to say is, I can't totally solve this right now, but let me do a few things that can show my good faith. And these are all of branches that are extended. And trust me, forgiving a $500 copay or whatever they're going to pay is a small price to what you're going to experience down the road if this becomes a holy war between you. The old adage for healthcare providers, you always have something to lose. I will take a step back and say the medical profession to me is still the greatest profession in the world. And it is an honor to represent those who have those gifts. And so you always have something to lose if nothing more than your time. The 60s cop show of you may beat the rap, but you're not going to beat the ride. The ride of a lawsuit or a board matter can be a two, three, four year 
trip through hell. And if you can reimburse a surgical fee and put your arm around them and say, I want you to know I gave it my best and we're going to do everything we can to make this better. And you can avoid that two years. Has it been that much of a pride swallowing siege to acknowledge that an error happened on my watch? Very rare are you going to have to say, I really screwed this up. I hit the common bile duct during the lap coli, and that's the 10th time I've done that. And yes, I've represented someone who hit, who did hit it about 10 or 15 times. Rare will that be, but many times it's, look, your anatomy, I've got the pictures for you. Let me show you why I cut the common bile duct. I want you to know, and I want you to know how we're gonna get this repaired. It's a common complication. This is the most common surgery ever. I've got a specialist coming in and you grease the skids for them. You take the time to make it worthwhile. All of a sudden you've turned that lemon into a little bit of lemonade and you can avoid future problems. Plus it's the right thing to do. It's not just that you get to avoid problems, but you've put somebody back to as close to whole as you can. And that's kind of part of, you know, what you guys do as you rescue and help us. You know, after you have a complication, these are hard conversations. And so one of the dadisms that I'm going to drill into my kids as they get older is the hard thing to do is usually the right thing to do. So if it's challenging for you to have this conversation with the patient, it's probably because it's the right thing to do. I often use that as a guide when I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. Well, let me give a, a little bit of a comparable analogy. Think about some kind of spat with your spouse and that it ends up, it's your fault. And maybe you didn't intend it, but whatever you said or did, it was a complication. Oh, these conversations are hard. Oh, I never want to be the one to bring it up. It's not easy, but bring in your dry erase board and yeah. show how the complication <laughs> happened. And one thing that I do actually with my spouse as I've gotten older, I've been married almost 40 years. We have learned to trace why are we grumpy or why did we say that? And many times I've been able to identify it's something has happened with work. I got a crappy email and I rose up and I barked at her about something. And then I'll be able to say, you know what? I, I got a crappy email from Bradley Block right before. I write the crappiest emails. <laughs> I said the stupid thing to you and I'm so sorry. And you know what? She forgives me. And then she'll say, here's the reason why I did it. Doesn't that translate? Because, we're, and I just, I looked at an article here and I want to commend it to your audience. It's the role of apology laws in medical malpractice. It's 2021. It's out of the Journal of American Academy of Psychiatry Law, and it's written by a couple of doctors, and it's great. It goes through the states. It talks about full coverage apologies and not covered, but it talks about the art of communicating, which we have to do with loved ones all the time. We should show some humility to our kids, to our spouse, to our colleagues, to our staff, or are we the guy throwing the scalpel across the OR and because we're brilliant, but that confidence and that faith in us is eroding because our interpersonal skills are not that great. So I'm saying this is just an extension of dealing with someone who's just outside of our family. I mean, one of my pitches to plaintiffs when I actually talk to them in deposition is I try to make them understand that if they've sued over a complication, I want them to know that besides them and their family, the person who feels the worst about that is the doctor. 
And that's because you guys are trying to help people. And so I don't think it's that big of a leap to go to people that you're trying to help to say that did not go as I wanted it to go. And I'm sorry you went through this. Let me explain to you why I think it happened. And then I think just as important is outlining the plan from there. If you blind somebody, that's one thing. But bleeding, we're going to be able to get over that. Or an infection, and we're going to have to do a revision surgery. That's going to be in your rearview mirror in six months, I promise you. And to help you with this, I'm going to whatever. Some people do struggle with a $250 fee that they have to do or an office visit that doesn't go very well. I've seen dentists and doctors and nurses, we will fight over things. And I think, you know, if you had reimbursed this guy for his dentures, he paid you 7,000 bucks, it didn't go well. You can make this up in the matter of a few weeks. If you had just reimbursed the guy, we would not be here. But three years later, we're in a death struggle. You've got experts criticizing you. You're about to be in the newspaper or certainly on some kind of reporting thing from the board. This was worth it to you to dig in on this when this didn't go well. I think we have to adjust it a little bit. And I think it's being penny wise and pound foolish to not figure out what is the best way to try to help them get through this challenge. One last question. Is there Anything else that we haven't brought up yet that you can think to decrease your risk of litigation? Examples being, give them your cell phone number. Take down the barriers to access so they have more access to you. A little more hyperbolic, make them your Facebook friend. Clearly, I don't think you're going <laughs> to recommend doing that. But you know, within that arena, is there anything else that you would recommend? There are a lot of things. And I do give a, a fair amount of presentations on helping doctors avoid this because it's something I want to do to give back. And I've seen strong men and women almost broken by these things sometimes. And sometimes it's not avoidable. It's just, they did everything they could. There was a bad complication. They have a litigious family and it's just gonna be that ride that we talked about. But sometimes it was avoidable. In no particular order, I would say having really good records. And my advocacy on this point is not longer records, just smarter, more pointed records. The tight five to 10 word sentence that really covers it. If this person has come to you and they have chest pain and you don't send them to a cardiologist, have a note in there as to why. This patient is having pain in his chest, but it's actually his upper abdomen upon exam. He's had GERD for many years. He's been out of his medication. I mean, something that gives you a nice little exit strategy when you are asked, why didn't you consider heart? I did consider heart. So records are important. Not, I'm not saying spend more time and I'm not saying write longer, write better, get used to touching all the bases. That's an area where people cut corners. And be prepared when the plaintiff's attorney says, doctor, do you know what a differential diagnosis is? <laughs> do you know, are you familiar with that term? Because in that, I didn't hear much of a differential diagnosis. Exactly. They're doing that just to get under your skin. They know what they're doing. They're good at it. You're exactly right. And the other thing that they do is they use hindsight bias to judge your judgment when you didn't know what was going to happen. Think about the Super Bowl where Pete Carroll didn't run Marshawn Lynch at the one yard line. Instead, he passes it and it gets intercepted. Well, if that had been a touchdown, he'd be a genius. So he's judged in hindsight, and that's how plaintiff's attorneys work, and that's how a lot of people who do plaintiff's expert work, is they judge in hindsight. So what can help you? Having tight records. Another thing 
and I know this isn't going to be super duper popular, but it's a quality of life thing and it just being a craftsman approach. If we're making rocking chairs, that we're making them good, that we're not hiring out a bunch of people to come in and manufacture rocking chairs that are going to break in six months. But our moms and dads' names are on these things and we're doing our best to make a quality rocking chair. And so what I'm advocating is and you can Google it right now, is look up the I Love Lucy episode where she's eating the chocolates. The chocolates are coming down the assembly line and she can't wrap them fast enough to where she's having to eat them. She's put them down her shirt. She's putting them in her hat. And the supervisor comes in, thinks she's doing a good job and says, speed the assembly line up. What I see are doctors who are seeing 50 patients a day and they should be seeing 30. And they've got to figure out other ways to solve that time gap but there's going to be complications when we are working so fast and trying to crush so many people through there so that we can make up for the low reimbursements and cover the rent and do everything else that we want to do. There is a tipping point there. And I would just say we have to kind of look in the mirror and say, I've really got to balance my patient's interests of health and safety with really how much I can do per day. Can I squeeze another ENT surgery in here? I'm already doing seven. Do I do eight? Do I do nine? That means I have to do each one in 30 minutes instead of 40 minutes. And can that make a difference? Well, heck yeah. I mean, most NBA teams that lead the league in turnovers are fast break teams. They're going fast and they're gonna turn the ball over. And when it's basketball, it doesn't matter. But when it's human beings, it does. And when it's doctors who are gonna end up in the crosshairs because of complications, then it does matter. And plaintiff's attorneys will get that information. They will request information from the facility and they'll figure out that from 8 a.m. to noon, you did X number of surgeries. I represented an orthopedic surgeon who's a shoulder surgeon. I found out he did 700 surgeries a year or something like that. We're talking shoulder surgeries. And I thought that is going to be a catastrophe if that is able to be put up on a whiteboard in front of plumbers and carpenters on a jury, and we've had complications happen, bleeding, things, the, the cutting corners after the surgery where we didn't really follow up on complaints, and he's doing 700 surgeries a year, some amount that was, you'd have to do two a day, and he's not operating every day, and he's not operating on the weekend, so we're talking four or five big shoulder surgeries every day. That doesn't play well, I think, to middle America. So another thing you've asked me, what can we do? I think that we have to really pace out the work so that it matches what we can do at a high skill level and not cut corners in that area. And then finally, bedside manner. And you and I talked about that off the record, but it's one of my pet peeves. The ones who have it, and you clearly do, seem to dance through the raindrops. They have a good rapport with their patients. They're responsive. If you aren't naturally good at that, again, a man has to know his limitations, get a staff member who is. Have somebody on your hip who can really pacify these folks. I get that a bunch of the patients are impossible. There's a kind of a slide in the mental health of our society, and I get that you guys are having to deal with people. And that's why, yeah, give them your cell phone number, but also be prepared to say, I really can't talk right now because they'll call you every hour on the hour. But given the cell phone number, yeah, I have a whole series talking about social media and stuff. Be careful what you text. You know, I represent a plastic surgeon. He has patients texting him pictures and saying, does this look infected? And he's making diagnoses that way. The right response is, 
I'll see you at the office, or I'm out of town right now, I need you to go to the emergency room, or call me. Do this oral conversation over the phone. Don't have a paper trail of text messages. That's one of the downsides of that. It's all discoverable. It's discoverable and it can make you look terrible. I mean, I've redacted it, of course, but in one of the texts, he's like, yeah, it looks infected. Good luck. I've called in some antibiotic or something. It's like, this thing got really bad. And then the patient needed subsequent surgery. And that is going to come back and haunt him. So he's not touching first, second, third, and home. He's just trying to run straight to second. We can't do that. We just cannot change the nature of doing this right. And beware, you're probably being recorded. In these office visits, you're probably being recorded. So you want to just be on your A game in that regard. Just be aware of technology. Yeah, in New York, you can be recorded without consent. You did mention the bedside manner. So if our listeners want to learn more about improving their bedside manner, listen to my prior 150 episodes, (laughs) many of which go into ways in which you can improve your bedside manner. So that's something that's near and dear to my heart. With the communication, my wife is always the one that drawing out the issue between us. It's not me with my... (laughs) She is miles ahead of me with this and is the better communicator. So she's the one that brings it into the light and makes us settle whatever it is that causes some friction. Yeah. But Mark, I so appreciate your time. A lot of insight, a lot of nuance here to what I was hoping would just be a multiple choice answer. A, apologize. B, don't apologize. But clearly it's not as straightforward in that. It's in the same case with two different doctors, it might be two different answers, you said, because each person has their own style and their own strengths. So I I appreciate you taking all the time to dissect this for us, a lot to digest, and then hopefully not need to apply anytime soon. Where can our listeners find you? You said you guys were updating your website. Yeah, we're at CalvertFirm at CalvertFirm.com. You can email me at the Calvert Firm website, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Every state is different, but a lot of this template is the same, and I'm a big advocate for helping healthcare providers. You guys are the best. You're in the trenches. The men and women who fight this battle every day, my heart goes out to you, but I do see some repetitive mistakes, people being too busy, not having great staff, not being real good on the communications, their records aren't tight. These are all Achilles heels, and if you can tighten up in those areas, you're likely to eliminate a lot of misery. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.